WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, and you're listening to Lumpen Radio. This is Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and politics from a different perspective. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and today we'll be talking about public housing in Chicago and beyond. Then at around 20 minutes to the hour, we'll be talking about Trump's immigration policies and the wall. Um, for those of you who don't know, the government has begun to solicit design proposals for the wall, and the architecture lobby is called a day of action and resistance. Uh, so we're going to talk about that and uh, also the means and methods we as architects have to resist those policies in general. Um, I actually work for a company that's pursuing the project, which is uh, really upsetting. Um, so I've got a, a lot to say about it, so make sure you um, keep listening. Uh, lastly, halfway through the second hour of the show, we will open up our mailbag, as we do every month, and we'll answer your questions about buildings and architecture with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. Um, before we jump into the show, uh, I should let you guys know that there is a podcast now, um, which is very exciting, so you can listen to the show that way. Uh, and also, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to Catherine Darnstadt of Leighton Design. Uh, there was, she was a guest on the show um, a couple months ago, and there was just a piece published in the Chicago Tribune that was critiquing the city's People Plaza program, um, which tries to make use of under, underutilized public spaces in the city. Um, Leighton Design developed a little building prototype called the Boombox for that uh, program. And, um, you know, the, the response they posted um, to the Chicago Tribune article is, is very good. Um, that, that program was very important to, to me um, and to the architecture lobby in Chicago. Um, it prepped us for... Uh, our kind of anti-Chicago biennial show at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, where we record this show and where Lumpen Radio resides. Um, and it was one of the reasons why the show uh, kind of started, right? It, it gave us a leg up to be able to do things like we did at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. So those kinds of programs have um, a real effect on the community in ways that you don't expect. Um, so shouts out to Catherine Darnstadt. Um, so on to the main part of the show here. Um, housing. So last show, we spoke briefly with Zach Mortis about the planned development of Lathrop Homes. And today we're going to continue our conversation on housing affordability in Chicago with Maya Duksimova and Leah Levenger. Um, Maya is a writer who frequently covers issues of housing. Her articles and translations have appeared in Harper's, Jacobin, Slate, Broadly, Truthout, In These Times, The Chicago Reporter, and The Reader. Shout out to the folks organizing Save the Reader. Um, it's a great campaign and a great publication. Um, and Leah Levenger is the executive director of the Chicago Housing Initiative. The mission of the Chicago Housing Initiative is to amplify the power of low-income Chicago residents uh, to preserve, improve, and expand subsidized rental housing, promote community stabilization, and advance racial and economic inclusion and equity. Maya, Leah, welcome. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so... Um, one of the major reasons why I'm excited to have you on um, is because I think a lot of architects and people kind of only engage in debates around public and affordable housing on a very sort of abstract level. Um, the American Institute of Architects often states its commitment to affordable housing, but for the life of me, I have no idea what they actually do about it. Um, I suspect it's nothing substantial. I'd be happy to be corrected. Um, and, and also, as I was explaining before we started, uh, in architecture school, we often sort of use our expertise to analyze uh, poverty, housing, and segregation issues. But after that, um, the conversation kind of dissipates. 
uh, we never really learn about policy or how to actually engage um, in these issues um, in a substantive way. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you guys on to talk about sort of policy and, um, you know, uh, these issues. Um, so Maya, I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> and last month you live tweeted from this meeting in Jefferson Park, and Leah, I think you were there as well. Um, and it was it was really insane to hear this kind of like intense dog whistle racism and the sort of myths about affordable housing that, um, you know, these residents in Jefferson Park, uh, these NIMBYs, not in my backyarders, uh, were, were spewing. Um, so you just published uh, an article in the reader about it uh, titled Opposition to Affordable Housing in Jefferson Park. It's nothing new for Chicago. Um, so I'm curious, what's the project in Jefferson Park? Sort of why were you there in the first place? Um, and did you expect there to be that kind of reaction or that intensity of reaction? Uh, yeah, so the project that's been proposed is a seven-story, 100-apartment uh, building that would have um, 80 of the 100 apartments would be uh, affordable apartments, um, 20 of them for people, uh, families making, um, I believe, less than $25,000 a year, and then um, another uh, 60 for uh, folks who are making less than $46,000 a year, and uh, and then the uh, remaining 20 apartments would be market rate rents. And the important thing about this development is that it will also have uh, quite a few units that will be fully wheelchair accessible, and um, uh, apartments will be available for people with various disabilities, and also it will prioritize um, Full Circle Developments, which is the nonprofit developer working proposing this project. Uh, would prioritize um, applications from veterans for at least half of the apartments. And so uh, actually, um, I heard about this development uh, for the first time. Um, uh, the Alderman Arena's office, who's the alderman uh, up there in the 45th Ward, um, they were uh, announcing the proposal. And um, I know that Leah has been uh, working on this uh on this an initiative as well, and she knows a lot about it, so um, she can she can say more about uh, the background of uh, and and the sort of uh, vision for this for this proposal. Sure. Um, hey, everybody. So uh, this proposal for the first affordable housing in Jefferson Park. Uh, it's the first affordable and first CHA funded housing as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not publicly owned. It's not public housing. It's own would be owned by a not-for-profit, but um, it would house families from the CHA's waiting list mm -hmm. um, for that component that Maya mentioned. Um, Kiefer, to your question of did we expect the kind of overt, racist, intensive reaction that we got? Um we knew it wasn't going to be the easiest thing to get done, um, but I would say that in 13 years of organizing with low-income tenants on affordable housing issues, this is the first I've ever seen something quite like what is happening in Jefferson Park. Um, it's it's a bit mind-blowing. Um, I haven't previously encountered, you know, 150, 200-person white mobs uh, chanting no Section 8, no Section 8, uh, no CHA, no CHA, and... 
Um, it's definitely been it's been eye opening about a force that has forever shaped the the siting of CHA funded right. housing in Chicago. Um, that force being racism, uh, and it is still with us, and it is on display in pretty dramatic ways on the northwest side right now. Yeah, and th- one of the things that so th- there's been sort of a couple of waves of opposition to this proposal. First of all. Um, Alderman Arena has been proposing other developments around the Jefferson Park Blue Line stop that would really substantially beef up density um, in in that part of the neighborhood. And there's sort of been months of various <clears throat> organized opposition to these proposals because they, you know, people say that they would be too tall, they would alter the quality of the neighborhood. Um, and so then this was announced, and the very first meeting. Uh, to get community responses and and to kind of tell the community about the details of the of the proposal happened on uh, on February 9th. and uh, that was the meeting at which there was chanting about no section eight. People were saying things like, "Oh, you know, Cabrini Green started out as veterans housing too." Which is true, with the first part of Cabrini Green was built in the 40s as veterans housing, but uh, the the gist of that statement was that, well, you know what Cabrini Green became, so, you know, watch out, this, this, this is veterans right. housing too. And then after that first meeting, which I live tweeted and which, uh, you know, was also written about, um, DNA Info covered it as well, but uh, it seems like that the, those opposed to this development became aware that they were basically portrayed as and and they were coming you know they they were acting as bigots they were saying racist things and they realized this might be a a PR problem for them so the next uh event that was held uh was at the end of February they there was an organized picket outside of Alderman Arena's um ward office and uh I saw a lot of the same people at this Hmm. at this protest as were at the first meeting but this time, the chanting and the signs were very different. So people weren't saying no Section 8. People weren't saying no CHA. People were chanting, Force, everybody's welcome, four stories or less. So the, there was this kind of pivot in the rhetoric from, we don't want the people that you're bringing here, to we don't want this density. And granted, there has been a, a history of opposition to higher density in that neighborhood, but this, the, the, the protest against this development began with a protest about this being CHA, you know, this being like another quote-unquote project in that derogatory sense. People were saying things at this meeting such as like, I don't want people bringing their cousins and nephews and, you know, this kind of coded language, uh, this coded like racist language was being used. Um, and then, you know, the very same people at the next protest had organized on Facebook and there were calls on Facebook saying like, do not bring signs that say no Section 8. Focus on the message of we don't want this higher density development. Uh, we don't want overcrowding in our schools from all the new families that would be moving in. So, and and there's a, a long history of opposition to affordable housing in Chicago based on those grounds, those arguments about density, about school overcrowding, about increased crime if you bring more people to the neighborhood. Right. Um, and uh, there's also a long history of, of, you know, the overtly racist opposition being kind of repackaged in this more... PR-friendly manner. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about the, all the dynamics that Maya just laid out um, is that there is an anti-upzoning 
movement right. uh, in Jefferson Park, and that's been there for years. But the maximum you would ever see in terms of protesters around just higher story buildings, you know, like maybe you get 30 people out at a protest around something like that. This, the only difference, it's actually lower density than other developments where there's been maybe 30 people protesting. The only thing different about this one is, of course, the affordable nature of it. Um, and you get 150 people, 200 right. people out screaming, right? right? So um, they are, the opposition is attempting to, to repackage and kind of make subterranean the emotional currents <laughs> that are at play. But um, we know what's there and we know what's driving it. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that they're leveraging density in this way. Right. Um, you know, we were sort of talking before the show a, a little bit and, you know, ar- architects have a lot to say about density, <laughs> right. And the, the way that it, it does and does not sort of like impact, um, you know, the livability of the urban environment. And the, the common wisdom is like density, like bring it on. It makes things more sustainable. It brings more quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the issue is more complicated than that, but um, you know, this strikes me as a kind of area where architects might be able to uh, sort of lend their expertise to counter some of these myths. Um, and I guess that's my next question, right? Is uh, they're kind of all these myths, and um, especially about like what Section Eight housing is, right? It's kind of been blown up into this big point of contention. So I'm wondering if, just on a basic level, you could explain what Section Eight is and sort of the history of it and how it's different from, um, you know, what we what we know and commonly understand to be housing projects, um, and also uh, sort of some of the myths about it that are that are put forward by by these. Yeah. So Section 8 uh, is a program uh, that's run by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And it uh, I believe that it really gained ground first in the 70s as an alternative to public housing. So public housing in this country has its roots in the Depression when there was kind of a, a, a stark realization that the private housing market um, could fail and that it could fail a huge proportion of the population, especially uh, of, of working white people, because, of course, the private housing market had been failing African-Americans for decades before that, um, and people were living in slum conditions for a very long time. Um, but the Great Depression hit, and there was this kind of political moment of realizing that, okay, a, a 25% of the population is impacted here, and the government stepped in to, to, to stimulate the economy with jobs by employing architects and engineers and builders, um, and also providing... Um, uh, housing that would be protected from market failure, basically. So some of the first uh, public housing was built under the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. And here in Chicago, there are uh, at least two uh, original Works Progress, uh, Works uh, WPA uh, housing projects that are still around, the Lathrop Homes and uh, the Jane Addams Homes, which are all all demolished now except for one building, basically. And I, I believe that Ida B. Wells might have been also a WPA project that was built for African Americans. Mm-hmm. And so public housing was, at the time, segregated. Um, there was this thing called the neighborhood composition rule where if public housing was going to be built, it had to be it had to reflect the character of the neighborhood. So segregation was, was kind of perpetuated by the, the new housing that was built. And then... Um, the neighborhood composition rule went away in the 40s, and uh, by that point, but by that point, um, there was a lot more public housing being built, and increasingly, uh, in, you know, in Chicago, it was built in 
you know, if there was going to be new housing built on the north side, they housed the kind of people that lived there already. Uh, south side public housing projects house African Americans. So, so the program was used, and the federal government knew that this was happening. But it was it, it was the the public housing that got built continued to house, continued to segregate basically. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a lot of the early public housing was very high quality construction. Um, there were a lot of famous architects that worked on early public housing projects, but as time went on and as the scale of these projects, you know, grew, um, these became like quite large complexes that were built a lot more on the cheap and also designed maybe with with far less uh, forethought, basically. And by the seventies, there was the there was a lot of dilapidation in these places um, for a lot of different reasons that I'm happy to get into, but it's kind of a long story, but the, 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 the projects became, uh, started to fall into disrepair. And, um, the, the section eight program was born out of this idea that, okay, like instead of having hard physical public housing units, we can also offer people a subsidy to live in the private housing market. So their housing would be subsidized, but the government would not be involved in building and running these, the, the actual physical, Units, and so a section section eight voucher. Now they're called housing choice vouchers, but it's the same thing. It essentially allows a person to rent an apartment from any landlord, and the federal government subsidizes a portion of the rent, and the tenant has to pay up to thirty percent of their income mm-hmm. for the rent. So, uh the majority of the people that the Chicago Housing Authority now serves are living in the private housing market with Section 8 vouchers. Um, they're not living in hard public housing units. And, uh, you know, this is the sort of trend across the country of, of demolishing and redeveloping hard public housing, um, either demolishing it entirely or redeveloping it into mixed income communities where there's a small fraction of, of public housing units and the rest are market rate or affordable to non-housing authority um, residents. And, uh, but most, there's like 68 something thousand uh, people, I think, in the, in, or households in the CHA's purview, and like 46,000 of them are living with Section 8 vouchers. So um, it's, it, it's, a, it's basically involving the private market in the provision of subsidized housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so when they say no Section Eight, right? This is kind of uh, uh, for them. It's become this big, bigger code word. Um, and so I, I guess what are what are some of the problems with Section Eight, right? I, I'm curious because I'm, I'm sure there are issues with it um, that are not what they are talking about, <laughs> right? And and then how do you how do you confront the myths about uh, affordable housing and and who lives in in uh, in these housing developments. Yeah. So our coalition is comprised of, uh, like we organize with direct stakeholders who use different forms of subsidized housing um, uh, as a means of survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the voucher holders that are part of the coalition, a lot of their largest frustrations with the voucher program, uh, one, the justification for vouchering out uh, hard 
public housing units or uh, physical affordable housing units that are in designated locations. The justification yeah. on the policy side has always been the argument that individual residents would then have more choice about where they live. They'd have more freedom. Um, that doesn't actually bear out in the experience of anyone using a housing voucher to navigate the housing market. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, race-based discrimination is a big one. Um, source of income-based discrimination, just the stigma of vouchers. A lot of landlords don't want to work with the program. And then there's administrative frustrations. Uh, The voucher program, it takes a while for the CHA to inspect units to make sure they're up to housing quality standards. So a lot of landlords who have uh, ample market-based renters coming in seeking to rent from them, they don't bother with the Section 8 voucher program. Um, They don't think it's worth their time or energy. Um, And the result of all those factors, um, the explicit discrimination and just the administrative hurdles, uh, end up being that voucher holders tend to only be able to rent in uh, the worst housing markets, the most difficult housing markets, and the most substandard housing in the city. Hmm. And so you see this this policy tool that was defended on the argument of choice and freedom for the families who would use the tool, um, instead actually just leading to the same... um, segregation and concentration of subsidized renters as the public housing program was initially critiqued for. Right. Yeah, and uh, it, it bears saying that in Chicago, it's technically, there's like a municipal ordinance. You can't discriminate against potential tenants based on their source of income. So if somebody has a voucher, it's technically legal to say, I'm not going to rent to you because you have a voucher. But landlords in north side neighborhoods where there's a glut of interest in renting, you know, they, they find ways to not rent to public housing right, residents. Right. They'll say, oh, you know, I leased up the apartment or whatever. And on the on, on the other hand, you have uh, landlords in segregated, impoverished neighborhoods um, that, that have a lot of rental housing that want to get vouchers uh, that that want to that want to get voucher residents because um, they're able to the voucher will actually bring in more money than they would get if they rented out the apartment at the area market market rate. rate. Hmm. And I just want to add also about the myths. Um, I think one of the biggest myths about the Section 8 program is that uh, technically any individual who makes less than $41,000 a year in Chicago, like if you're a single person household and you make less than $41,000 a year, you qualify for a voucher. So a huge, most people I know, including myself, like qualify, would technically qualify. There were some hands that just went up around the studio. That's what was happening right there. Would qualify (laughs) for a voucher. And the problem is, of course, that there's, there's a limited supply of them. And if I wanted to get a voucher to subsidize my rent so that I wouldn't be paying more than 30% of my income, I would have to wait on the waiting list for years. Right. You know? Just give it a decade, Maya. Right. You're in, right? Just give it a decade. So uh, we're going to cut to a short break, and we'll be back with Leah and Maya in just a minute here. All right. Welcome back to Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. We're still here with Maya and uh, Leah, and we're talking about public housing. So we're, we're just mentioning uh, Section 8, and um, we're talking a little bit while we were on that brief break about sort of the architectural considerations of Section 8. Um, Maya, you were going to say? Yeah, uh, well, that because the Section 8 program is now the primary way that af- that affordable housing is delivered uh, in the country, uh, architecture has really kind of faded into the background of affordable housing issues. Like as has it, intentionality overall. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, it, the, the way that the public housing 
program when it started, you know, during the depression was talked about was about providing, you know, clean, sanitary housing that would bring light and air into the lives of, you know, poor families. And architecture was very much at the at the center of these conversations about how we physically build spaces that are more humane for people to live and that are affordable. But now, um, because essentially the provision of affordable housing has been relegated into the private market, um, you know, this is, this is, the architecture is a non-issue, is a non-question. Um, it does come up when we talk about building new building new housing. So for example, in the Jefferson Park uh, example, but, uh, or in any kind of mixed income development that happens. Um, Just to share numbers on that, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful opening point is that um, the housing authorities rates of rebuilding have plummeted dramatically, Mm -hmm. um, essentially since the new administration, no longer new, but since Rahm Emanuel took over as mayor. Um, So we saw the housing authority go from producing 800 public housing units a year on average mm-hmm. during Daly's entire term um, to immediately after Rom took office delivering 400 public housing units and then 112 and then 40. Oh, wow. um, and the levels nothing. are starting to come back up slightly. I think we're going to get to maybe 300 public housing units this year that yeah. the CHA, uh, public housing replacement units, right? Again, they're all privately owned, privately operated, but CHA funded. Um, but we're going to get back to that level of actual construction of into the built environment. Right. Um, but the, the, the dissent has been both based on kind of federal policy shifting towards voucherization and away from the actual creation of, of physical sites. Um, and then the mayor's administration as well uh, at the local level has, has pretty much abandoned the supply of of a, a physical hard housing stock, right? Yeah. So, uh, how do you how do you counter that, right? I mean, like, what is it going to take for for us uh, for for folks to, um, you know, what are, what are the pressure points that we can use um, as activists to sort of um, you know, demand the city put more? Right. I mean, one of the tools that we've been uh, working on as a coalition for the last two years is actually a city council ordinance that mm-hmm. would. Um, it would do a lot of things uh, in terms of increasing oversight and accountability at the Chicago Housing Authority. But mm. one of the provisions of it, <clears throat> and I think this discussion gets at why it's important, is it, uh, this ordinance that's called Keeping the Promise would legislatively mandate the integration of CHA-funded units into essentially north and northwest side areas. Mm. So um, the ordinance sets a minimum, a 20% minimum of future CHA units ending up in what are called opportunity areas. As a policy term, it just means areas with very low poverty rates. Um, so uh, for most of Chicago, it means the north and northwest side. There are a couple pockets mm-hmm. elsewhere that meet that threshold of um, not being impacted by poverty already. But uh, we're trying to integrate into areas where affordable housing hasn't been before, um, integrate affordable housing in. And the reaction in Jefferson Park to this really modest proposal, actually, um, like it's it's amazing how vitriolic the reaction has been to a very modest proposal to right. include some CHA funded units in this um, in this private development. Um, that reaction kind of shows why we need laws that protect and further this kind of fair housing, open housing yeah. mandate, right? Because what's happening right now with Alderman Arena is um, this, this kind of racist reaction. He's doing the right thing for the city. He's doing this extremely progressive, like taking this progressive action right. to... Um, further fair housing and further housing opportunities for low-income families on the northwest side. And uh, there's a set of his constituents who are calling right. for his 
political demise and well, saying this is going to be the end of his political right. career, right? And so we need to protect we need to protect the aldermen who are willing to take those stands. Yeah, uh, we need to give them legislative cover and political cover because if we're asking people to be exceptional and take exceptional risks for the sake of doing yeah. the right thing, it's not going to happen, right? right? So you don't craft public policy based on exceptionalism. You craft public policy based on let's look at the forces in the world and let's assume average human beings <laughs> and let's make sure that we can advance as a city, right, and become more more connected um, and less separated. Um, so that's what we're trying to do through through keeping the promise as a city council ordinance fight. That's yeah, that's amazing, and it it has been really interesting to see this alderman sort of stick to his guns, right? I, that's so uh, so rare <laughs> in Chicago, and um, you know, as was reported in the article, you know, he he said these are these are people, right? Um, it, it was it was very interesting to see a, a North Side alderman take that stand. So that's that's very cool. Um, yeah, the last thing that I wanted to mention was was this idea of sort of uh, not for profit developers, um, and I'm I'm very curious. So I I I worked at my office on a project for uh, preservation of affordable housing, um, which is a not for profit developer, a national one um, around the University of Chicago area, and um, you know. I, I'm just very curious about it because I, I know very little, but it seems a little bit funny uh, because it, uh, not-for-profit um, in this instance, it doesn't mean that no one's making any money, right? Um, it just means that the the profits aren't shared amongst shareholders. Um, and I suppose that's totally fine as long as it sort of works, <laughs> right? As long as it's effective towards uh, making housing more affordable and equitable. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what your experiences are and, you know, Sure. Uh, I love not-for-profit ownership of affordable housing yeah. because otherwise the housing is always at risk of being converted to market. Um, so a lot of the organizing work that I've had to do over my 13 years is uh, uh, when buildings are not nonprofit owned, mm -hmm. um, you see the owners eventually decide yeah. they want to leave the subsidy program and cash in. Gotcha. Um, and the the whole privatization of public housing in the first place, I mean, I think um, there's a lot I could say about that. But uh, when you look at the way CHA redevelopments are happening, um, when for-profits are doing the redevelopment, it's a total just public giveaway. It's just another parking meter right. deal um, because the, the developments are all publicly funded. Mm -hmm. like, there's no private equity right. going into them, contrary to the narrative yeah. that's told. If anybody wants to look at finances, I can geek out with you sure. forever. <laughs> um, it's really actually all public money going in then to produce a private asset owned right. by a private for-profit entity yeah. where the affordability restrictions tend to go away after 15 to 30 years. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes there's a 99-year land lease. Right. Um, but they are getting public assets that yeah. are becoming their private. Um, yeah, I think that, that that makes sense to me. I'm curious, too, about not-for-profit not developers versus, like, outright public ownership. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. yeah, what that is. Well, uh, outright public ownership is uh, is an endangered species that's yeah. that's that's... Die, that's dying out quickly, and yeah. I don't think that, especially under not just the current administration, but in general, the t political tide in this country is not going back towards public ownership of anything. Uh, I will add that an additional problem that non-for-profit developers might see in, in, in the future, depending on what our new president decides to do uh, with, with, with the IRS, is uh, um, they rely a lot on tax, on like different kinds of tax credits and uh, progr IRS programs to, to 
cobble together the funding that they need to to um, build their developments. And some of that stuff may be changing, and uh, it, it it may become more difficult to get basically tax, different kinds of tax subsidies to do um, to do affordable housing development in in the future. So, um, yeah, um, just to piggyback on that because it actually. Uh gets into some really interesting territory about how federal housing policy is being yeah. crafted. Um, under the Obama administration, we actually saw a surprising proposal for the further privatization of some of the remaining public housing stock in the mm-hmm. country. And the Obama's HUD secretary at the time defended this move, um, not from a financial standpoint, not from an architecture standpoint, not from a community planning standpoint, but from a real politic perspective that it's only if you have a Uh, a private trade association Mm. lobbying for continued funding of public and subsidized housing that you will see the program survive as a funded line item in the congressional appropriation process, right? Which is true, right? Right. Because there's there's a couple types of subsidized housing. And what we've seen over the last set of decades, actually, is the public housing programs are consistently underfunded, which throw the public housing developments into disrepair at the ground level, right? Um, But the programs that have private ownership, um, private management, for-profit or non-profit, there are these trade associations that lobby for the continued funding, and those programs survive. So the privatized programs, you see funding being steady or even increasing, Mm -hmm. while the public programs, which I would argue are actually far better and far more efficient, (laughs) you see funding for them decline, right? Um, And so it, it, from a... a (laughs) To achieve a theoretically progressive end mm-hmm. of preserving an affordable housing stock, the Obama administration was taking kind of a reactionary, like <laughs> kind of like yeah. right wing strategy. Um, and I think that the the broadest way, the broadest thing that that speaks to in our country is the complete corporatization of democracy. Right? That like there are programs only survive when there's these corporate associations lobbying for them. Programs don't survive when it's just ordinary Joe, you, me you know, Tamika down the street, like standing up for what we need in our lives, like that doesn't defend programs anymore. It doesn't defend funding anymore. And so there's this sick logic happening where privatization um, just feeds itself. Yeah, I think that's a a very poignant point uh, to sort of wrap up the segment. Um, And I'm I'm wondering, you guys both do such a sort of amazing work and reporting and activism around this issue. So uh, before I let you guys go, I'm wondering where people can go for more information. Uh, So... The uh, at the reader, um, housing is part of my beat. So um, just uh, chicagoreader.com dot uh, com or my Twitter at m d o u k m a s is where uh, I update um, with with my stories on housing and and also you know there's other there, there's a, a, a wealth of archives on the on the reader uh, website about um, housing issues that um, our reporters have covered since the reader has been in existence so fantastic and for us uh, we're sort of a bankrupt organizing coalition so our website is not amazing but you're welcome to go to it at <laughs> www.chicagohousinginitiative.org it has more information about some of what's happening with public housing and some of the campaigns that are underway um, and or uh, people can reach out to me at Leia at ChicagoHousingInitiative.org uh, to learn more. Fantastic. So uh, Maya Duksimova, Leia Leffinger, 
Thank you so much. Um, and we're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Buildings on Air for a conversation about Trump's wall in just a minute. Welcome back to Buildings on Air here on WLPNLP Lumpen Radio. Um, shouts out to our producer, who's been so great and played some fabulous protest music for us to lead into this segment. Um, and this segment is all about the wall and sort of architectural activism. Um, I'm joined in the studio by Carlos Ra, a colleague of mine from school, as well as an activist and member of Architectos, uh, Gabrielle Prince, member of uh, F Architecture, the Feminist Architecture Collaborative, and Dex Walcott, who uh, is a fellow member of the architecture lobby uh, with me. Um, so they're joining us via Skype. So there might be some uh, choreography that has to happen. Um, but I wanted to start off the kind of conversation with some of the sort of real impacts that uh, Trump's immigration policy is already having. Um, you know, in addition to the wall, there's this whole sort of constellation of things that have, that have already begun to happen, right? Um, deportations and detainments and, um, you know, threats to the Deferred Action Program. Um, so, Carlos, I'm wondering if you could maybe kick off the conversation for us and kind of give us a background on some of, on some of these things and some of the things that are happening and some of the conversations that are, that are going on around those issues. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, thanks a lot, Kiefer, for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, in regards to what uh, Kiefer was referring to, uh, currently, uh, personally, I, I'm a DACA, DACA student uh, or uh, graduated uh, recently from uh, Illinois Tech. And uh, people like myself are in sort of like in this predicament now in which uh, we, you know, some of us have been activists for a while. And uh, under the new administration, uh, people like myself are uh, are actually being targeted uh, by ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Uh, there was recently an activist uh, out in Alabama who was uh, detained shortly after, uh, you know, giving a press conference on immigration. She, you know, she was expressing her fear and, and uh, the fear of deportation and whatnot, and, and immigration did go after her. Uh, this does have precedent. Uh, this has happened before uh, during the Bush administration. Uh, I had a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine, who was also targeted as an activist. Uh, so that's something that currently... Uh, DACA students uh, or, or DACA, you know, people with DACA, uh, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, uh, you know, we, we would be we would be beneficiaries of the DREAM Act. Uh, right. And right now with Congress, uh, you know, in gridlock, uh, there is possibility for some sort of immigration reform happening under this administration. But we know that that's not, you know, that might not be for a while and, and that might not necessarily be very beneficial for many immigrants in this country. Uh, as documented uh, immigrants in this country, we might benefit from that, but that's still to be seen. And, and uh, we're currently, uh, many of us are living in fear, and uh, and some of us as activists are still pushing to, uh, you know, to you know, get things done, uh, you know, and to prevent our deportation. Uh, but it's still things are still up in the air. Yeah, it's scary, scary stuff. Um, well, I really, I really appreciate you being here. Um, in, in that context. Um, and uh, I think there's many of us in, in the architecture community and beyond who um, aren't impacted by these laws who um, want to be standing right there with you. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, to, to sort of move, move to the architecture part of the conversation, um, you know, I work for a company that's, that's going after this project. 
Um, I don't know that I've, I've said that sort of publicly, but it's very upsetting. And I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the company right now, but if you are enterprising with Google, you can figure it out in about two seconds. Um, and, uh, you know, I've flagged all of my concerns to them and um, talked about ethical issues. And, uh, um, you know, basically the message that the CEO sent was um, that, hey, we've already done a lot of work on the border, right? Mm. His whole thing was like, we're already an evil corporation. Uh, we already do pipelines. We already do border walls. Border walls already exist. And, um, you know, instead of having like this kind of forethought to suggest that like, hey, maybe those were wrong too, <laughs> Right, um, and and so this this wall is is um, you know a lot of people said that it would be symbolic, right? Um, but but we all know, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's not how how most people actually come to the country. It's not by crossing illegally. It's uh, they're going to fly over the wall. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, that was that's in my case. Like my family, uh, we came on tourist visas many years ago, back in 1989. Uh, I was only two years old. And so technically, I, I've been living in the country for 27 years undocumented. Yeah. Uh, you know, under DACA, I've been protected for the past, uh, you know, nearly five years. Uh, but still, it's something that um, it's, it's only a temporary status. And uh, I am concerned as somebody that is also a designer uh, with the wall. I mean, it's something that is unnecessary. Uh, and, and it's just it, it's, as you mentioned, something that would be symbolic. But it's really, you know, it's it's almost uh, also unfair uh, for us to uh, for for us to create this or be proposing this wall uh, when you know we also have like a lot of animals that are you know don't, they're, they're not concerned with these <laughs> yes, human issues. Yes, they don't issues. care about borders. Yeah, they, they have no issues with that. And so, like the environmental impact of the wall as well, right. uh, those considerations aren't being take aren't, aren't taken into. Uh, consideration enough, and so you know, it's not just like the the human aspect of it, or or it being something that's uh, uh, completely unnecessary. Especially considering that uh, migrations have had a significant drop uh, in, in the last few years. Right. Uh, you know, people aren't migrating as they used to. In fact, most immigrants that are undocumented in this country have been living here for a long time. As yes. in, as in my case, as in the case of my family. Uh, so that it's something that that. Uh, it's just rhetoric, uh, and he's playing. Uh, this administration is playing on that uh, on the on the fears of people uh, in this country. Yeah, um, yeah, twenty billion dollars of rhetoric, <laughs> and you know, I think uh, it's important also to sort of underwrite the the real world consequences of this because, um, and, and I can bring sort of Dex and uh, uh, Gabrielle into the conversation. On this one, um, a lot of architecture offices have proposed uh, sort of some, and a lot of people, right? People who are on our side, who are who are incredibly well-meaning, have proposed the idea of submitting thousands of blank proposals mm. um, to you know for the wall. I, I guess may, maybe before I should back up because uh, there's this request for proposal process that that happens that I think a lot of people don't actually know about. Um, so basically, for the government uh, to be able to build anything, right, the federal government puts out, uh, puts out a call for proposals, and um, it's, it's a request for proposals, and then they solicit companies um, to submit uh, for whatever it is they're you know needing to build, um, and an RFP for the wall went up uh, just last week, 
um, and there, there are actually two of them, um, and one was amended. And the first one is a white paper. They're calling for a white paper that, um, ex- that explores – I have the language here in front of me. But basically it's supposed to explore the prices and consequences and necessities of uh, building a wall along the entire border. And the other one is a call for prototypes. And basically – uh, prototypes of, of a wall. And essentially, the government will select, down-select from each of these uh, RFPs a handful of firms. Um, they could be architecture firms, they could be engineering firms, they could be contracting firms, but in, either, in any case, um, someone who can do design-build and contract builders to build it. Um, and uh, they're going to down-select those offers, select a few companies to move forward with a full proposal, and then select a few to actually award the contract to. Um, Dex shared with me earlier that they actually changed some of the dates on this um, and updated the proposal, the RFPs, and you can find these um, on the Internet uh, on the federal government website. And... Um, they're asking for white papers and prototypes to be um, submitted on March 10th, and then they will down-select by March 20th, and um, they will have awards now by May 3rd, and they're going to issue a bunch of indefinite contracts, is what they call them, indefinite, indefinite quantity contracts, where basically they have the option to sort of um, – they have an open contract with the company that whatever company they're going to hire to do it, and um, they'll be able to build however many miles of wall they want to build. Um, but I, I wanted to point out that this process is incredibly robust, <laughs> right? Um, so, so I'm I'm wondering maybe maybe Dex, you can talk to some of the ideas that like, hey, let's clog this RFP with a thousand blank pieces of paper or a hundred tongue-in-cheek proposals, because um, I think it's kind of offensive to the reality of of the situation. Hey, Kiefer, thanks for having me on. Um, I think to start on that, we should talk about the border fence in general, that what we're talking about here is actually it's a 2,000 mile long border. As of now, only approximately 650 to 670 to uh, to 700 miles of that is fenced currently. Most of it is composed of natural barriers. So building the fence itself is um, for the entire length of the border is a bit of a folly of a project, specifically the Department of Homeland Security and Congress has intentionally chosen not to do that before for a long time. But to get back to the question of procurement, the the federal procurement process is incredibly robust, an incredibly thorough process. And I don't know if a proper response to something that is much larger than a wall. The wall is merely the physical manifestation on the border. And beyond that, there's a 100-mile zone where constitutionality is suspended. There are checkpoints, there are identification laws, there's a nationwide deportation force, immigrant prison systems, and a whole ideology of forced deportation, of, of making people's bodies illegal. So it's much bigger than just this physical barrier, and sort of making jokes about the physical barrier denies the real reality that people live in terror of being deported every day, and that making the wall bigger is only going to force people deeper and deeper into the desert and cause them to die. So it's not an appropriate response in my mind because it's not really a design problem at this point. 
it's a much larger political problem. Yeah, very well put. And, you know, I, I unfortunately have some experience with this because I work for a company that's pursuing it. And it's, uh, you know, just a week ago, I was telling Carlos that uh, my office was very progressive <laughs> and they have really progressive hiring policies. But I imagine you don't want to work there. Oh, uh, quick station ID. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was telling Carlos, you know, this is a great company. They, you know, it's a tight 40-hour work week. The pay is good. They have good labor practices. Um, but you know, this is kind of, kind of the flip side that, that we're all in as young architects is like, you know, you have to pick working for a company that offers those things. And, and, you know, usually those are large companies that have sort of very questionable practices mm -hmm. and, and relationships. And, and this is one of them, but they have an entire division of people that, ex, you know, organizes procurement for projects like this, that has a relationship with the federal government and DHS, um, Department of Homeland Security. And so they've been angling for this for months. This is not like an open architecture competition. Um, and I think a lot of the people who are sort of suggesting this, very well-meaning, right, they're, they're, have a, a kind of view of architectural competitions and, and academic discourse that is uh, maybe separate from the realities of the military-industrial complex and how this thing is going to go down. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, anyway, don't, don't work for my office, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> Staying away from those companies. <laughs> yeah, um, but oh, let me find my notes here. So one 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 thing that is going on in response to this is the architecture lobby uh, day of action. We're calling it. Initially, the call for proposals um, was due on the tenth of March, and so the. Uh, the day of action was scheduled for March 10th. Now things are due later, um, but we're still going to go ahead with the March 10th date. Um, but basically the idea here is um, for architects and engineers everywhere to uh, stage a 45-minute uh, walkout uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern time across the country um, and take a picture of it, blast it on social media, um, and, and there's a whole list in, in the full press release that the, the lobby put out um, that I helped write and Dex helped write and many others in the group um, that kind of lists 10 other things you can do as part of this day of action. Um, so, um, I, I, Dex, maybe you can go more in, into sort of the day of action and, and what we were kind of intending when we wrote it. Sure. Um I think beyond just the walkout, there's a lot of things that can happen. Having a conversation, the organizing that will take place in your office to have that walkout, conversations amongst your coworkers and your employer about what your ethical stance as an office is to these types of actions and to the militarization of space in America, which is what this really is about, is a constant militarization of everyday life in the United States, which is a... Um, to take a brief aside, I would say is a very recent phenomena to what your employer was saying that we've been doing this forever. Right. The Department of Homeland Security was created after 2001. There are people, there are children in this country who are not yet able to legally drive that are older than the Department of Homeland Security. You know, these <laughs> systems are not things that have always had to exist. The wall only became a physical barrier, excluding around the areas immediately in front of gates of entry in 1994. Yeah. This isn't something that we have to assume. And so having conversations about exactly this, the history of what we're actually doing and doing the individual organizing amongst your office of saying, are we against this? 
And then taking extra steps is what we suggest, that you could sign a pledge as a firm to say that we do not want to participate in this specific wall. And also publicize that information to one another so that we see our action as a group of refusing to participate in the militarization of American space. And uh, Gabriel, I'm going to bring you in in a second. But first, I want to go, go back to Carlos, because one of the things that you've brought up uh, many times um, in, in, while we were preparing this decks was that it's important to note that, that for the most part, uh, architects aren't going to be the people affected by this law, right? Um, just based on the, the, the demographic breakdown of the profession. Um, and uh, so, so this is really like a, an action that um, is carried out in solidarity um, and in resistance to sort of ev everything that, that Trump stands for. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's also a really strong basis to kind of congeal um, a collective of like-minded architects who are against these things, um, who can also engage with um, the other activist communities that have been organizing around this for, for, for decades, right? Um, um, since, yeah, literally decades. So I, I'm wondering, Carlos, uh, um, you know, you have a foot in both worlds here. And yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what the kind of connections that can be made are. And, and, and yeah. I think there have already been uh, some connections established. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, a great person uh, that, or a great architect that has been considering these, these, uh, these issues for a while has been Teddy Cruz yes. uh, out of San Diego and, and the Tijuana border. Uh, and he's he's proposed interesting projects. In fact, I was just reading an article about that. Um, and and I, I think that um, people like him, we should be taking, at least within the profession, uh, the lead of, of people like him because he's also an immigrant to this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then also uh, people like myself who have been uh, activists for a while in addition to studying architecture, right. uh, you know, as designers. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, you know, just the, the considerations of a border, obviously, like, you know, don't make any sense, right? And, and uh, how do we pivot the conversation to start talking about, like, bridges and, like, another, uh, <laughs> right. other things that, you know, that we could provide? Uh, and, and I think that that's more or less, like, where Teddy Cruz is, is trying to uh, take the conversation uh, to. And, and, uh, uh, and so that's something that, you know, I, I would like to be a part of and, and, uh, and part of the reason why I'm here. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I actually I have a quote from Teddy Cruz uh, sort of lined up here. Um, some of us may have read about the uh, quote unquote progressive architecture office June, July, um, and they uh, intend on submitting uh, to this proposal. And, and um, they, they asked the question, can we come up with something more humane? more aesthetical, and I've never heard the word aesthetical before, and I, you know, sort of swim in made-up words yeah. as, as someone who teaches. Um, and I think the answer to both of those questions is no and no, unequivocally. And, uh, you know, there's a great, we've, we've already litigated this as a profession as well. Um, there was that awful, awful, I almost cursed, awful competition for a border wall uh, that happened a year ago, right, where someone mm -hmm. was trying to make this a sort of whimsical thing. And um, in an article in The New Republic uh, by Suk Jong Hong, and maybe this was the article you're referring to, mm -hmm. uh, yep. Teddy, Teddy Cruz 
Teddy Cruz said, sometimes architects must decide when not to build, since the politics right. of neutrality has rendered architecture as a pure decoration of very unjust policies. Can I add to that? Um, yeah. I, I would say that it's also it's also interesting. Like it's it the conversation definitely goes beyond the border. I mean, yeah. it's it, we're talking about the military, uh, the uh, prison industrial complex. Right. I mean, it, it's in addition to the military industrial complex. Right. Uh, and, and the prison industrial complex. I mean, it's not just that you know this country for the past. Uh, you know, four or five decades has been focusing on, on incarcerating people of color. But also, you know, we've also been building uh, detention centers, you know, right. and each one of these detention centers like holds thousands of immigrants, you know, in beds and whatnot uh, and, and deplorable conditions many times uh, with not uh, adequate uh, medical attention. Uh, and, and so who's designing these spaces? You know, who, what are the firms that, that are, are doing that type of work? And, and I think that uh, even within the, the, the canyon, uh, the AIA, you know, rules and whatnot, uh, the, their canyon specify, like, you know, we shouldn't be designing, like, inhumane spaces. Right. And we're doing that. Right. And so I think that that's, uh, we need to start focusing more on, on those issues. Yeah. Yeah, we need to. Yeah. I, would, I would love to please. interject Yes, here, please, please. You've been, yes. Um, so all great points. And I, I want to thank you for having me on the show. Um, and I'd like to bring together some of these things that of course, like it's much broader than the border wall. Um, uh, Dexter has mentioned this, Carlos has mentioned this, it's, uh, this huge system of policing and involves, um, you know, builders and contractors beyond the profession of architecture who are managing prisons, who are uh, engaging in detection and supervision policing of these territories. Yeah. So I think uh, a really important question we need to ask is, um, you know, when when are architects invited to, to participate? And I think uh, a really obvious place is this, this RFP that's out right now, but um, how many architecture firms are represented among them? Uh, it seems that the list is mostly construction firms, engineering firms. So yeah. uh, I I don't want to totally dismiss this like um, active resistance of like submitting maybe not blank documents, but uh, establishing that as a space of appearance for architects who are otherwise not able or um, equipped or, you know, willing to submit a proposal to this wall, but to establish a, a space of appearance for them to to resist here in this like strange um, contractor portal for the federal government. Right. Um, so I'm interested in seeking out these kinds of positions that are, you know, not the kind of like terrible whimsical border wall competition, but like um, more serious attempts to interject by architects who are interested in, you know, dissembling uh, these right. kinds of architectures. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the, the substance of what you're saying, absolutely. I, I think um, the, way that I, the way that I understand this is that as progressive architects, right, as sort of uh, radical architects, uh, we don't ever engage with these sort of big multinational um, corporations, right? Because even, mm -hmm. even a lot of those engineering and, and uh, construction companies, you know, this is a solicitation for design build and, and the, there will be architects there. They have architects who work for them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we often just do not understand how these, how these companies work. Um, in yes. the first place, there's been a kind of like abdication of uh, on on behalf of radical architects to understand how like these these kind of manifest 
manifestations of neoliberalism meet the ground, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, I, I think on, on some level there, there's there's that space as well, um, which which is. Um, not exactly the space of the sort of federal government um, and and this call, um, but but is is part and parcel of it, um, and and I you know I feel weird because because I'm I'm sort of in the thick of that. And what I would love what I would love is to be able to have the organizational and radical infrastructure in those kinds of places to shut it down, mm-hmm. right? To shut it down, Absolutely. and and because because to me this is the answer, right? It's a question of where we find our agency, and and Gabrielle, you wrote this fantastic uh, article on the Architects blog that that talked about withholding labor. Um, as as a means, and, and for me, this is kind of the gold standard of resistance. Um, but it's a question of how we move the onus of resistance and withholding labor from the individual worker, because this isn't like an Aaron Sorkin TV show, right? Like this is activism. Mm-hmm. Act, uh, it's it's you can you can quit your job and make yourself feel better, but we want to withhold our labor to shut it down, and you know we're not there yet. Part of the architecture lobby call is about normalizing doing that. You know, so it's just 45 minutes. You can take a long coffee break, but it's a start to, towards getting there. But, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk more about this issue of withholding labor and kind of maybe some of the context for your writing. Yeah, um, I mean, I have to say that I'm coming at this from somebody who is not practicing in a way that like ever really engages a building like I'm, I'm not um, an architect but a kind of spatial practitioner and I'm also not um, not uh, experienced as a, a political organizer but I'm trying to find in my practice F architecture is trying to find its way between these kinds of poles of doing and not doing and what our efficacy is especially for uh, practitioners who are not sort of centralized in the profession that like can effectively withhold labor. Mm. So I think the architecture lobby is like, is really attending to this issue in an important way and that you're trying to band together um, people. And I think it it's essential that we sort of establish this we, especially in light of our, our professional organization who you know, can't effectively do that or is unwilling to engage in politics in that way. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to, as a feminist practitioner, to acknowledge the kinds of labors that you undertake that are um, uncompensated. Yes. Um, so what I mentioned in that art- article is um, a series of calls to uh, strike by, by women as a, a more effective gesture than, say, occupying uh, the National Mall um, as part of the Women's March. The Women's March was an incredible event, um, and the scale of it was immense and amazing, um, and the organization of it was not without its, you know, its its flaws, its problems. Um, but I think there's an argument to be made that instead of, like, sort of corralling Oh, we might be having a little bit protest. of protest. Oh, oh, am I cutting out? It was, yeah, just for a moment, but <laughs> you're back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm back. Um, yeah, so I think uh, 
and a, a kind of effective gesture is to actually, you know, withdraw from our space of labor, but our, our space of like sort of um, economic appearance. So um, there is a, a national or international women's strike planned on March 8th, uh, conveniently uh, uh, proximate to this walkout. Um, and that's also International Women's Day, but it puts um, it puts women who may be represented in some of these uh, architecture firms, um, women who are maybe of the kind of Sheryl uh, Cher- Sandberg um, uh, variety yes, yeah. of you know feminist practice, um, but who who sort of benefit from their appearance in public space in a much different way and puts them in line with people who are um, you know. Uh, not re- not represented in the formal economy, um, people who are sort of undertaking domestic labor and emotional labor and reproductive labor, um, and how those are also valuable uh, contributions to the economy, and how together we can um, withhold all of that. Right. Yeah. Last night, I actually. So, yeah, Dex, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> It's a perfect segue from what you're saying. I saw last night the amazing Silvia Federici of the Wages for Housework movement um, in Italy. And she said something about withholding labor in the way that labor and work is changing in the systems these days. And what she thought was speaking to specifically was the strike and the women's strike that, um, one, we strike for those who can't. That was not, she didn't say that, but that was, there's been a lot of great conversations about that sort of in oh, my architecture firm doesn't do exactly this. Well, you should strike for those who can't be able to strike that day because of the economic conditions. But also what she said specifically related to the strike, we need to expand our notion beyond just the withholding of labor, but also consider engaging in activities that counter capitalist accumulation in the capitalist system altogether and Mm -hmm. a withdrawal of compliance of that logic. And so I think the logic of a competition and the sort of individual that has this great idea that through an invisible hand market is going to rise to the top is the best, most witty critique solution of the wall is exactly that capitalist logic right. that we have to disengage from. And, and the idea that withdrawing is not entering into a conversation is entirely false. Saying you're not going to do it is part of the conversation. Right. That is mm-hmm. participation. Yeah. Yeah. June, July said we want a seat at the table, right? And we, we want to participate, but, but rejecting and, and refusing is participation. There's no outside to this system. Um, yeah. And, and indeed, you know, we saw, we saw similar things, uh, Recently, there was the the day without immigrants, right? And uh, P- Chicago public schools was was virtually empty in some spots. Um, you know, I, and I'm I'm curious, sort of, what tactics are being are being used um, from from the from the immigrants' rights movement, um, and and sort of are, are people calling senators? I know there's there's this push to strike in that way, a day without immigrants. Um, I'm curious, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, I think I, I spoke earlier about yeah. uh, some of the activists within the community that are, you know, that ICE has been going after. Uh, and, and Daniela uh, Vargas uh, from Alabama is one of them. Uh, and so I know that people are calling calling DHS, uh, uh, Senator, 
uh, Secretary Kelly uh, to make sure that you know she she gets released. Uh, and then there's another, uh, I believe his name is Danielle uh, Garcia from uh, from I think Seattle, uh, who was also arrested. He's also documented. Uh, and so I, I know that people have been making calls to action uh, on on their behalf, as well as you know holding rallies and and different uh, protests. Uh, Outside of like you know different offices, uh, DHS offices, yeah. uh, and, and said, and then outside of that, uh, earlier today is, uh, in fact, I was actually uh, canvassing, you know, my my own community. I live up in Rogers Park. Uh, yeah. Uh, near Loyola, uh, and uh, well, thanks for coming all the way yeah. across town. <laughs> no worries, no worries. <laughs> and uh, out there, we were, we were, you know, we were basically canvassing, uh, uh, you know, letting people know in our community, uh, you know, letting them know their rights, uh, the fact that they don't have to answer to uh, immigration officials, uh, you know, if they knock on the door and let you know, unless they have a warrant, a signed warrant. Uh, so things like that. I mean, I, that's always you know that that's always important, and it has been done like over the years, but yeah. more than ever. Like I think now is, is something that we're seeing a lot of like uh, new people as well uh, getting involved in the in you know immigrant rights organizing and I think that it's that's promising uh, but we just have to you know keep up the heat yeah and we'll keep it up um, you know I think there's like I said it's uh, activism is not sort of being a, a character on an Aaron Sorkin show right. I mean, you know, we do have to uh, sort of make these individual eth- ethical choices, but um, really it is kind of about turning up that heat as a collective. Um, we're, talking about, we're talking about power, right? Like politics isn't, is, is, uh, isn't about positioning. It's not about ideas. Um, it's about power. And there's many kinds of power, right? Um, but what they all have in common is that unless you're part of the ruling elite of this country, like you, you don't have it. And, and your power as an individual doesn't mean much. Um, but we do have power as a collective. And, uh, you know, I think it's also important to note that right now we're not at the level of collectivization we need to be to be able to contest that ruling elite. Um, and, but, but, if every fight brings us together, right? Like if, if these kinds of fights bring architects together with the immigrants' rights movement and, and the feminist movement, uh, you know, if every struggle sort of solidifies those relationships and solidarities, then like we will win, right? Like we will win eventually. And we'll win because we're the majority and we'll win because we're like on the right side of history. And, you know, I just, even if they build this stupid wall, I almost cursed again. Even if they build this stupid wall, we just had a conversation about public housing. Like, we'll tear, we'll tear it down and take the steel and melt it down and use it to build public housing. And, and you know, I, I, feel, very, I feel very confident in that. Uh, but but this, this struggle is, is a process. Um, and I think connecting those dots and getting involved in, in sort of some of the ways that uh, Carlos mentioned and, and, and this day of action and, and March, March 8th um, are huge, huge, huge parts in that. Um, so I, I want to keep talking about this forever, uh, but we're, we're, almost, we're almost out of time. Um, I, do you have any final comments, you guys? Maybe we can start start with Carlos. Yeah, I think that uh, it's important for those of us that are uh, people of conscience uh, to keep our foot uh, in their different worlds that we participate in. I mean, I, I on one end uh, I'm an activist, and on the other end uh, I, I'm an aspiring architect. I'm you know I'm almost there. Uh, so because 
I, I feel like throughout the years, like I, one cannot live with the, without the other, uh, at least in my lifetime. And, and, mm. and I take every opportunity that I can t- for them to merge, for those different worlds to merge. And so if those of us that, that are designers and are also, pe- also people conscious and have like our, the issues that we advocate for, if we continue to merge them and to advocate uh, on our different issues through them, uh, we will be successful. Yeah. Hell yeah. No, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Dex? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I would say in closing that um, we're taught in school that architecture is everything in the world, right? And that, arch- and that we are these incredible artists with this vision that will bring our unique perspective. And that is throughout, I think, the history of the modern architect caused us to burst into spaces where we might not have anything useful to add to the conversation an architectural problem it is a political problem and we should be architects but we should also and and organize through our profession to create networks of action of resistance but there's a point where you can also engage in other activities in your community through meeting immigrant rights activists there are people who have been fighting this fight for years and this wall is not just trump's wall it was Bush's wall, it was Clinton's wall, and it's Obama's wall. So we need to put our feet down and say, no more. We messed up. We participated in the past, and we're not going to do it anymore. That's all. Fantastic. Gabrielle, final comments? Yeah, I think I think we just need to embrace a kind of broader understanding of, you know, the terrain that we operate in as architects um, and designers and spatial practitioners of all of all sorts, like this is um, complicated terrain and it involves powers that are far beyond us. But if we um, have an understanding of how to operate in that landscape, we can um, seek out opportunities to resist in more nuanced ways that are sort of between this, um, you know, the spectrum between complicity and refusal. Fantastic. Well, and no is an action. And no is no is an action, and it's an action that's stronger if we're all doing it together. Um, so that's a good place to end. And I and I really want to thank all three of you for coming on, Carlos, Dex, Gabrielle. I really appreciate it. You guys are listening to Buildings on Air. We're going to go to a break, and we'll be back with you, uh, and we'll be answering your listener questions. Still time to get them in. So. Welcome back to Buildings on Air here on Lumpen Radio, WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. And uh, we're here with our favorite segment, our regular segment, The Mailbag, where uh, Anne Louie and Craig Reschke answer of Future Firm answer your questions about buildings and architecture. Uh, Anne, Craig, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, pretty good. Excited to do the mailbag. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's good. We've been talking about public housing and the wall. So um, now it's a good time to answer some silly questions. <laughs> well, no, there's, these are people who need help, right? So uh, I don't want to impugn their questions. I'm glad that we're the comic relief part of this show. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, as you mentioned, it's like you guys, uh, this is a architecture's click and clack. We'll make it happen. Yeah. That's our only dream in life <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to know and I, I said I was going to ask it which one of you guys is click and which one is clack <laughs> which is the one who laughs hilariously because <laughs> I want to be that one <laughs> honestly I don't know the difference between click and clack yeah well they kind of sound the same right I guess right. Uh, <laughs> and they're brothers I guess that's weird for us to pretend to be brothers <laughs> yeah right <laughs> 
Uh, well, let's get into some questions. Um, so I, I guess we can start um, – where where to start? Where to begin? So uh, here, I feel like we're on a quiz show every time we do this. Like, <laughs> am I going to know the answers? Yeah, that's right. Well, I'll, I'll start with the question that I gave you in advance, which was which oh, was no. I gave you in advance because it was kind of a curveball. Um, usually, I subject you guys to sort of like gross uh, gross uh, spontaneity. Um, <laughs> but but the question was from Twitter. Jake Matthews asks via Twitter, "How can the architectural world address the issue of overpopulation while still being environmentally sustainable?" I know you gave us this in advance, which means we should have had some sort of really thoughtful, crafted response. And we even said we should reread Thomas Piketty before we answer this question and have some really cogent insight about Malthusian limits. But um, I'm not sure if I have a broad economic response. I guess I would say recently I've been thinking about sustainability through the idea of incremental change. Um we, we, every year, okay, so Craig and I are life partners and work partners, and every year we set our, a name for the year to kind of like set an intention that's, for the year. First of all, that's precious. Okay. And second I, of all. <laughs> yeah. Like our, our real embarrassing um, hippie personal life that I'm now sharing on the radio. But this year, you know, against the backdrop of the Trump administration and so on, we, we're, we're calling it year of marginal gains. <laughs> so instead of trying to, I don't know, go after kind of, um, I, I think I think what that means is kind of incremental progress. Yeah. And I, I guess I feel that way about architecture and sustainability against the backdrop of crisis as gl- on the global scale. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think overpopulation has been has its critics uh, as a as a topic. I mean, I think not everybody agrees that Malthusian limits are a thing anymore. Um, but I do think the question comes from a place asking about sustainability and um, expansion and growth. Yeah. And for me, I, I prefer to kind of approach this from the perspective of, of marginal gains rather than transformative change this year. Ask me, ask me again in 2018. <laughs> yes, hopefully 2018 will be the year of uh, system, system overturning. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's a good answer. One thing that I, I think about, uh, you know, this question was sort of sitting in my mind, was sort of environmental racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of the conversation about overpopulation sort of dovetails with environmental racism mm-hmm. because, of course, when people talk about overpopulation, they talk about sort of booming populations, like not in the Western world, yeah. right? But they talk about it in China and India, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that there is a kind of like a, a questionable, like underlying um, current of thought here that, that also needs to be borne in mind. Um, yeah. What, can I ask a dumb question? Is, <laughs> is population growth still increasing in the United States? I don't know off the top of my know. head. I don't think so. Um, our producer, our producer is shaking his head no. Uh, and, and I think uh, you know, there's been a lot of research on this. Yeah, to you, were, you were mentioning it, Anne, and I, and I think that it says that like, hey, like this is going to plateau, <laughs> yeah. eventually. Um, well, it's uh, maybe this is like an overly uh, capitalist interpretation that I'm sure <laughs> Kiefer is about. I will to take. correct you on that. Yeah. If it's, uh, yeah. But with. Uh, as uh, as countries grow in terms of GDP, doesn't their uh, population growth 
uh, go down. Yes. Like richer countries reproduce uh, more slowly. Many countries in Europe have negative growth rates. Yeah. And so does Japan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think um, that's correct. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't, uh, architects, like, we're, I, I don't want to kind of, like, get into a territory where I'm just making claims about things I don't know about, like, <laughs> economics and population. Right. Like, I read a chapter of Piketty. That doesn't mean, like, I have the expertise to speak on this. But I do agree that um, I, I, I wonder if this question comes from a place of concern that is, in fact, domestic and about actually U.S. cities mm. and a fear of uh, and, and a, desi- a desire to kind of increase housing stock, but a fear of overcrowding and overpopulation, which, like you said, often stem from kind of intersectional anxieties about race and class. Um, so I guess we're, we're doing a really poor job of answering <laughs> this question. We're more like trying to psychoanalyze this poor yes. <laughs> Twitter Thank you, Jake Matthews. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're, uh, we're not calling you a prejudiced person. We're right. trying to think through our own prejudices That's in right. thinking about this issue when of I, overpopulation, quote unquote. And I think that there's a world, right, where we can have all, we can have our cake and eat it too. Like, really, I, I believe that that's possible. Um, and, well, let's move on to another question. <laughs> um, we did such a bad job of answering that. No, one. I think that I think that that was a good job. Um, so uh, here's a question: um, how, and how to start an architecture office? You guys have done it. You have the future <laughs> firm. Have we? <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. Is there something I should know? It's a, yeah. it's a front. I, <laughs> um, how to start an architecture firm? I mean, we close did. your eyes, hold yeah. your breath, and jump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I guess I think that there are two routes, right? Like there are some people that leave an existing firm with a job from that firm or with a group of clients that mm-hmm. kind of quickly shift into kind of reproducing that that firm's mode of working. And I think SOM is a good example of this, right? Like many people leave SOM and kind of have started other yeah. large firms that are in the same. Um, in the same kind of vein. But I guess for Anne and I, I think it was much different in terms of just, uh, yeah, we kind of jumped off this cliff just to see see what would happen. And we're mm-hmm. scrambling now to, to learn uh, before we hit the ground. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should call back Urban Lab for this <laughs> since they seem to be a successful case study while we are uh, a floundering, fledgling uh, office. Yeah. Um, so I guess I would say it is not for the faint of heart unless you have a trust fund. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, and we, of course, we speak from a place of privilege. Like we have teaching positions that um, kind of help help pay the rent and and um, we co- we come from offices that kind of lent us some expertise and so on, but uh, it, it's not a it, it, it can be incredibly rewarding sometimes to work for yourself and to be able to work directly with clients, be able to kind of set a course for architecture and the things that matter. And other times, um, it is incredibly painful when you are trying to navigate some sort of department buildings bureaucracy or refill your ink printer toner which is like just something you didn't budget for or like debate whether you should pay the aia dues when they are just like half your month's rent and like so on so and so forth so um like there there are just these debates we never thought we'd have about like whether it's ethical to take on a uh, basement renovation where we think that the units are going to be rented uh in a way that is like not serving the tenants like Mm-hmm. I, that's a question you never have to take on when you work at SOM or Morphosis or whatever. But um, and they are now that we have our own practice. 
Yeah, and actually, I think the one of the things that I struggle with the most in starting our own practice is on days when I have a question about something or I'm not really sure, mm. and there's just there's no one to check with. And I mean, I think we've started to develop uh, uh, kind of friendships across other other firms in Chicago. But you can't call those people every time you have like a question about a brick detail or right. like where the vapor bar- barrier goes. Yeah, yeah. So. Like, we can only ask <laughs> yes. Sarah Dunn so many times <laughs> about who her food consultant is or how do you do X thing. And she got, you know, like, yeah. uh, we, we are very grateful for our friends, but um, also, yeah, uh, uh, sometimes feel like there's no guidance in yeah. this. Nobody teaches you in school how to set fees. Right. How do you do that? And we like we kind of I mean we yeah there's well, people we talk to about it six, now. But. Sixty years ago, the AIA would have helped you set a fee, but now they can't. We are kind of recently. I've been thinking that fee schedules would be good for this industry. <laughs> yeah, and like it is not good in terms of yeah. monopolies, and it is not good in terms of. Okay, there are many reasons why fee schedules uh, got taken apart by the Department of Justice, but on the other hand, like. Right. Uh, there is incredible price gouging happening in Chicago that undercuts firms that can't afford to sustain their practices through other means. Yeah. But this is, uh, and Kiefer, maybe you have some input on I this. I have but a lot the, of input. Yes. <laughs> the, the real estate uh, agent industry has been able to consistently maintain a 5% fee for right. selling your house for yeah. you. and. I don't know if it is that the Department of Justice has not gone after them or if they are just kind of marching arm in arm. No, so so if they were marching arm in arm, that would be collusion and a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, right? Mm. Which is the the act that the the feds threatened the AIA with and did sue some AIA components uh, for violating, for having fee schedules, which the Sherman Antitrust Act basically says that you can't collude to fix prices. So... Um, uh, in the 60s, the AIA and, and just about every other professional organization was threatened by, by under this, this legislation, um, which is, you know, an old piece of legislation. Um, and, and actually, um, for more information, you can, you can find on the Architecture Lobby website a report about the Sherman Antitrust Act. That was a uh, research that we did, uh, Peggy, mm-hmm. Peggy Deemer. Um, founder of the lobby, and Jay Wickersham Car- writes on this. Yes, um, and it's it's interesting because also on uh, the Architectural Lobby website, you can find um, some of Peggy uh, Peggy Deemer and Phil Bernstein's mm. um, responses to Jay Wickersham because mm. he's the he's the other person who writes about this. Yeah, and it's funny because it's really only like those three people. He's a genius about it. Though. Yeah, 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 there's yeah. only these three people who have who have ever sort of talked about it. But it's um, it's underwriting. Michael Kubo wrote about it in uh, Office U.S. Agenda. Um, Oh, I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, he, he does. He, uh, he does great work on sort of the history of corporate architecture, Sorry, just... which is an, an an understudied area. But still, right? Like we're talking about four people, four four people who study this thing that impacts every single architect in a in a major way. Um, probably the most important sort of moment for architecture and pricing to ever happen. Mm-hmm. But the International Association of Architecture Associations um, keeps track of this and. And it's very rare for a country to not have a fee schedule. They have fee schedules in Canada, right? And Canadian architecture is very similar to architecture in the U.S. Um, 
So yeah, it started this race to the bottom where architects couldn't, and a fee schedule, if you're, if you're curious about that, is basically, it says, if the building is like this, you're going to charge this percent, uh, this, this much to do it. Um, so it kind of keeps everyone in line uh, as a kind of baseline. But without that, it's a race to the bottom. Um, and... I, yeah, I mean, I, I could probably talk about it forever, but I'll, I'll, I'll Wait, sort of. But can you tell me why real estate agents all charge? Oh, 5%? yes. So this is this I can because uh, it's the same for lawyers and doctors, right? Like they do have a conversation about price, but the the difference here is that it's go it goes through an independent third party. So um, if if the say American Medical Association was talking about price then it would be collusion. But if there's an independent third party that's just kind of saying, hey, someone who does a heart surgery in Oklahoma makes this much money or like, you know, charges this much, then like that's fair game. So so a lot of other professions have established that precedent or or had someone do it. Um, but but architects really haven't had the same thing. Mm-hmm. There are some websites that you can go to that that are trying to do that. And, and if you go to them, they say this is a third party independent site. Mm-hmm. Um but but that's that's the difference is with real estate agents, it's a third party that's yeah. providing that information and it kind of does the job of setting a floor. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the architecture lobby has opinions on this or is moving on this in some way. But I mean, we we were just talking about this. Uh, you had Catherine on your show the other week. I, I'm just gonna call out a tweet that she made because it, she tweets publicly. But Catherine tweeted about losing a job for like some inc- large 30, building, 30, thirty-two unit apartment. Building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which she bid th- sixty-three hundred dollars, and I cannot believe I'm saying how much Catherine bid on live radio. But she tweeted it, so it's <laughs> out there. And she got uh, she lost a job to somebody who uh, uh, bid three thousand dollars. This is insane. That's you nuts. cannot. You literally cannot hire a, a structural engineer in the city to do a building of that size for three thousand dollars. Like, and how are you doing? Like, of course, yes. Maybe you have existing plans and you are changing the address and everything's already been sized and the mechanical yeah. w- whatever is ready to go. But like, is that helping our city that we are supporting a mode of architectural practice which supports people like doing, you know, rubber stamp architecture all over the city? Like, are we? Supporting the architects who are willing to work for virtually nothing, like right. I like, I, I don't know. There are but just it, so many things about this that make me feel frustrated and sad and scared about like, and then and then we see like articles complaining about spending fifty thousand dollars on public space yeah. in the city and like. Just really quick shouts out choose. to shouts out to my boy David Hecht in New York, <laughs> um, who who reminded us live on Twitter oh. that uh, Paul Siegel is another is the fifth person <laughs> who t- who talks about this. He teaches pro. Packet GSAP and is also an architecture lobby board member. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess maybe we have to move on from this topic. But the, um, I guess the other thing that I think is that as architects, we should all start being more open about. Like I think it was quite a brave thing for Catherine to tweet yeah, about this absolutely. this problem. Yes, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> and I think. I think if we discussed these issues more uh, in the profession, and I don't know what the line is between like me calling an architect and saying, "Hey, mm. what are you? What are you charging and for what's things collusion. like this?" Yeah. And what's collusion? Um, but it, it seems like a more open and frank discussion would yeah. would help us all, especially young firms like Anne and I that are trying to 
trying to figure these things it's out. It's a good it's a good question and and I hope Peter Exley is listening. He's the ex- <laughs> executive he's the he's the director at large for AIA National and I had a conversation with him about a number of issues where I thought the AIA was messing up and this was one of them, right? That they needed to stop taking such a conservative stance on these issues because if you go to an a- if you're at an AIA meeting and anyone says anything about how much anything how about how, how much they charge for anything you're supposed to leave the room under their under their ethics uh, procedures and antitrust compliance procedures. It's draconian, it's backwards, and it damages the profession. And so, it emerges from this idea of the architect as a gentleman, right? Like the, yeah. the gentleman architect, like, doesn't price gouge. Is this uh, kind of, you know, professional who just helps the client, hand-holding, so yeah. on and so forth? I mean, that is our job, but the market has changed uh, dramatically since that mode of practice emerged like in the 19th century. And we need to update, think about this critically and like engage in a way that is also more equitable because what does it mean for practices who can afford to work for next to nothing to compete with practices who, which cannot and shouldn't, I mean, whatever, (laughs) architecture lobby is a broken record on this so i won't <laughs> i won't i won't i won't take your guys the soapbox <laughs> uh no gladly uh but but uh, you know we really should move on to another question because we're, oh, yeah, running, we're running up on time already i feel like guys. this has become like a future firm complaint group therapy <laughs> hey session. no that that's all right because i think it's informative and important um but we should we should ask a funny question and i, <laughs> and, I and i did get a funny question <laughs> Um, if the USA is so advanced, why do they have wooden houses? Europe used to have wooden houses back in the Middle Ages. Europe doesn't have wooden houses anymore. <laughs> why do United Statesians think they're so advanced when they still live in wooden houses? You guys love insulting other countries, but you cry like babies when someone says you're not <laughs> number one at everything. <laughs> what is the demonym they gave to people from the United States? United Statesians. Dem- nice word. Uh, United Statesians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of all the possible digs at United States and the, the Woodhouse watch that seems both left field and so gentle. Like there are so many ways to rip on us today yeah. and, and you ripped on us for our wood frame construction. Yeah. Um, I guess I thought that question was going to be like, why don't you have heavy, heavy timber construction? Like you all should lead the heavy timber tall tower <laughs> You know, so and so, which has like fewer carbon emissions, like. But it was just like they do not want wood frame. They it's believe a, wood frame it's a sign of inferiority yeah. is a sign of a less advanced culture. That's we should all say. we should live in masonry alone <laughs> or steel alone. Yes. Um, or they, what? Or they, inflatables? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm for a hundred percent inflatable uh, city. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, those things get so smelly and are so poorly poorly <laughs> ventilated, so we learned. Yeah. Uh, no, but I genuinely don't understand the question. They want us to live in masonry buildings? This, this. Yeah, they said all, all yeah, that they want us to live in masonry buildings. What do you think? Uh, well, wood, wood buildings are less expensive than masonry buildings. Um, I'm not sure about the kind of carbon footprint of yeah. either masonry or wood. I'm sure that with the kind of... Uh, platform framing industrial production of uh of timber is not or of uh dimensional lumber is not uh does not have a small yeah. carbon footprint but I, th- I mean i think the answer it's cheaper right <laughs> <laughs> number one and also uh you can still make something look nice out of wood people do it all the time <laughs> <laughs> um 
But per- perhaps we should just direct this person to some some beautiful wood yes, framed buildings. We should uh, like go check out some. I don't know who who makes the nicest wood framed buildings around. Mm. Like someone on the West Coast, you know, like right. some beautiful like Portland. Yeah, Portland, like Allied like Works. No, 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 a smaller scale. Frank Lloyd Wright, even. I, I mean, <laughs> as questionable as Frank Lloyd Wright is, but like he did a lot of nice wood. Buildings. I challenge this questioner to bring back the wood framed building as a thing that is both <laughs> sustainable, chic, and first yes. world. <laughs> on, on that note, um, on that note, we're going to wrap up the mailbag um, and and the show. But before I do. Um, to bring it back to a serious note, I, I want to recite this poem that I think is uh, very pertinent and poignant to a lot of the conversations that we were having earlier. It's uh, Bertolt Brecht, uh, Questions from a Worker Who Reads. Um, and it goes like this. Uh, who built Thebes of the Seven Gates? In the books, you will read the names of kings. Did the kings haul up the lumps of rock? And Babylon, many times demolished. Who raised it up so many times? And what houses of gold glittering Lima did its builders live? Where, the evening that the Great Wall of China was finished, did the masons go? Great Rome is full of triumphal arches. Who erected them? Over whom did the Caesars triumph? Had Byzantium, much praised in song, only palaces for its inhabitants? Even in fabled Atlantis, the night that the ocean engulfed it, the drowning still cried out for their slaves. The young Alexander conquered India. Was he alone? Caesar defeated the Gauls. Did he not even have a cook with him? Philip of Spain wept when his armada went down. Was he the only one to weep? Frederick II won the Seven Years' War. Who else won it? Every page of victory. Who cooked the feast for the victors? Every ten years a great man. Who paid the bill? So many reports. So many questions. So thanks, Craig and Anne, for joining us for the mailbag. And you guys have been listening to Buildings on Air the show where we talk about architecture and politics. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and this is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. Thanks for listening.